For the past couple of weeks, journalists and pundits here in the UK have been listening, commenting and dissecting the political party conference speeches. In an age of social media clips and three-word slogans, this somewhat old-fashioned ritual, a speech of approximately one hour in front of a packed room of usually cheering supporters, continues to determine the political fortunes of leaders and shape their image in the eyes of voters. They peddle the same old answers. It's always more taxes, more regulation, and more meddling. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because as in 1945, 1964, 1997, this is a Labour moment. So that was Keir Starmer and Liz Truss speaking at their respective party conferences. But today we won't be talking about the leaders themselves, but rather instead taking a closer look at the unsung heroes of the party conferences. That's to say, the speechwriters. Few of you will even know their names, but these humble wordsmiths have shaped our lives more than we imagine. They've crafted the slogans which we associate with our frontline politicians. Education, education and education. Coined era-defining expressions which changed the course of history. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall and which in many cases have become part of the political vocabulary of our times and have been used by politicians from across the world. Within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro. Welcome to London Calling EU. I'm Tony Barber, the European Comment Editor for the Financial Times. Joining me today are Lorenzo Biondi, speechwriter to Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the European Commission, Philip Collins, a former speechwriter for Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister, from 1997 to 2007. He now runs the speechwriting agency The Draft. And finally, Terence Suplet, one of the longest serving speechwriters to President Barack Obama. There are stories about everything our union stands and strives for. It is a story of heart, character, and solidarity. They showed everyone what Europeans can achieve when we rally around a common cause. This is Europe's spirit, a union that stands strong together, a union that prevails together. Long live Europe. Thank you. Many of you will have recognised that that's President von der Leyen delivering the annual State of the Union speech. This is a ceremony that began in 2010. The first Commission president to do so was José Manuel Barroso, but it's become something of a much-anticipated event in the European Union calendar. Lorenzo, take us behind the scenes, if you can, and run us through your speechwriting process. Imagine yourself sitting in front of your computer, looking at a blank screen, and you know you've got to come up somehow with the Commission President's most important speech of the year. Everyone's hanging on your wordsmanship. Where do you start? Do you follow a set structure for these speeches? Where does the inspiration come from? Thank you, Tony, for the question and for having me. 
the European Commission, as you know, is famous for being a big bureaucracy and behind the State of the Union address, there is indeed a, a pretty long bureaucratic process that starts a few months before the speech where we ask all the ministries basically to provide us with ideas on policies we may announce, what they see as the main topics for the year ahead. But then, of course, basically the crunch time for writing the speech is probably the last month before the speech is actually delivered in September, where we start sitting down with the president, von der Leyen, and start with the actual drafting process. This year, as you may have seen, we've had a, a guest of honor, actually several of them. One of them was the first lady of Ukraine, Olena Zelenska. And on top of that, two young Polish women who welcomed Ukrainian refugees after the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And I can tell you that that was almost one of the starting points when we started working on the speech. So we started to think whether there could be people who would convey the president's message with their presence only in the hemicycle of the European Parliament. And we thought that these three guests could help us with that. So in a way, we started drafting the speech a bit around the idea of introducing these guests. And then, of course, on the main policy announcements that the president wanted to make. And these were basically the two or three weeks before the speech around the end of August and the beginning of September. So this was the process this year. If you look back at the, the speech now, it's only a few weeks ago, of course, would you say there's a line in it or a couple of lines in it that you felt really stood out, that you'd really worked some magic there? Were, were there any other lines that you thought didn't work so well, should have been improved? Well, first of all, I guess when you work on a speech like this, it's well, well on all speeches, it's always every line belongs to the president more than to the speechwriter. At some point, we kind of disappear behind the person we work for. I think probably one of the lines that stand in my memory is about courage. Courage was a big word in this year's speech, clearly with Ukraine in mind. And something like courage as a name and that name is Ukraine is to me perhaps one line that describes pretty well the spirit of the speech. I won't tell you what could have been improved. I mean, you know, in a one hour set speech, there's always something that is not perfect, but I guess that's the nature of a speech like that. And, and honestly, of any speech, I mean, if you read them a week after, a month after, or a year after, there's always something you would have written differently, but that's part of the job. And I guess for any job. And did the commission president, did she stick to her script or did she say anything impromptu during the speech? She does speak off the cuff every now and then. For this speech, it's a bit different. This was a speech that the president really worked through line by line meticulously in the days before the speech. And she rehearsed a lot in the previous days. So in the end, the delivery was almost 100% the same as the text she had in front of her. But every single word in the speech came from the president and it really came from her heart. Let's bring in Philip Collins. Philip, you worked as a speechwriter for Tony Blair. If you were to compare your preparations for a speech like those at a, at a party conference with the kind of speech that the European Commission president gives, they are different audiences, aren't they? And I imagine that the speeches have to be crafted with that in view. Yes, absolutely. They are different audiences. The European speeches are, of course, a much wider audience, um, 27 different nations. And a conference speech is, of course, much narrower. It's a single nation. And it's sometimes not even all of that nation. It's sometimes a narrower audience still if you're trying to win over the party. 
So a, a year ago, not the recent speech that Keir Starmer gave in Liverpool, but the one he gave a year before in Brighton, which I was involved with and I wasn't involved this year. The main focus of that was to win authority within the party, to win the authority to act, which then this year he then used to speak more widely to the country. But even at its widest, when you're writing for a prime minister on the occasion of a party conference speech, you are only speaking to your own country, really. And so it's narrower. It's also more overtly political because you are a leader of a party as well as a prime minister and you're, you're making a, a piece of political rhetoric. So there's, there's certain parts of it which are rallying the faithful and you've got clap lines and political knockabout, which you certainly don't get in the State of the Union address of the European Union or, or the United States for that matter, and, well, and, until Donald Trump changed the tradition, of course. So they are different in that respect. But there are some interesting similarities, too, because the great technical task of that speech, which is by far the longest speech you ever write for anybody, too long, probably, most of them, is trying to find a theme that links all the various things you have to cover. You have to be comprehensive in this speech. There's so much to get through. And in order for it not to descend into simply a list of things, you know, episodic, here's another thing and another thing, you need to find something that, that links the themes. And that's just technically very difficult because what does really link the latest reforms of the National Health Service through to the war in Ukraine? Well, probably not much really, but you've got to try and find a way through it so that the speech flows rather than simply lurches between things. And, and that's a technical problem you encounter the bigger and longer the speech gets. And, and so I, I, was, I was quite uh, impressed by the smooth... Um, linking of the speech, Ursula von Leyen's speech as it unfolded, because I, I remember that. I've been there before trying to find something that makes it come together. Just one other thought on the Ursula von Leyen speech too, is it just really reminded me of, of the very origins of speech writing, because the two big themes of it were, sadly, war, and then the arguments about autocracy and democracy. And those are the two big themes of Pericles's speech. The first speech really we have any kind of recorded uh, documentation of, albeit from Thucydides in the history of the Peloponnesian Wars. But this was a, a eulogy for the war dead, and it was an account of a democracy and its superiority to tyranny. And those two themes, war and the superiority of democracy, were the themes of the State of the Union Address. So it, it shows the reliance we have on, on the classical uh, origins of rhetoric and, and sadly how little changes in politics. Just to pick up on this point you made about uh, a party conference speech, the leader is thinking perhaps in one speech might be aimed more at his own party than at the nation as a whole. And then a year later, as you said, thinking more of addressing the country. But in either situation, it's a case of bringing out the personality of the leader, perhaps more than might be the case for a European Commission president. So I imagine you're looking for phrases and something that will stick in people's memories that help to establish something about the character of the leader. Would that be fair enough to suggest? Absolutely, it would be fair enough. I mean, this again takes us back to Aristotle and the three components of persuasive language. The one which we think is obvious, uh, the most important, is the rational argument. But Aristotle didn't think so. He thought that character um, was more important than that. And so too was an emotional connection with the audience. And so you are absolutely trying to devise a character. But of course, you're not simply creating a character as though it were fiction, 
because you have an actual person that you are working with and you're trying to describe them and an audience will sniff it if it's um, entirely inauthentic. So, but, but nevertheless, that's not to say that therefore you just simply want to say it as they are. There is a sense in which the rhetorical character of a person is somewhat different, somewhat amplified over and above their actual status as, an, as a person. So it's an act of creation. It is a sort of uh, piece of creative writing to that extent. And you are trying to find ways to dramatize somebody. And you're trying to, in that dramatization, also evoke in the audience the sort of leader that they will be and the kind of things that they will do. And some people are brilliant at this naturally. Some people who I don't particularly like politically are very good at this, um, in fact. I mean, Boris Johnson was extremely good at that. Everything that Boris Johnson did and said had Boris Johnson stamped all over it. And that's a great political virtue. Whether or not you like where he's going, and I didn't especially, it doesn't matter. He's just very good at it. I think the same was true of Donald Trump. The 2016 presidential campaign was a sort of laboratory experiment in one candidate, Trump, who had an incredible ability to con convey and, and project a sense of Trumpness. Uh, and on the other hand, a, a candidate who, to my mind, was highly ordered and rational and disciplined and had a five-point plan for anything, everything, but struggled to make enough of an emotional connection, namely Hillary Clinton. And it's not surprising it was a very close call. But that ability to project a character is an absolutely critical part of being a very good, successful political leader. And it's, um, it's much the most interesting part of the process, I think, and, and in fact, the hardest, because you want to give something of the leader to the audience but that individual may be reluctant to display too much and it can sound terribly clunky as well if you somehow find stories that tell the tale i remember ed miliband who was labor leader for a while but never made it to prime minister had this habit of telling stories of people he'd met along the way and it just seemed that somehow by some miraculous accident everybody that ed miliband ever bumped into on the street spoke in perfectly formed labor party language and it didn't really ring true. Um, so you can do it badly and you can get it wrong, but it's a, it's a fascinating task, the depiction of character in politics. I'm going to ask uh, us all to move, at least uh, in our imaginations, across the Atlantic and, and welcome Terry Suplat in Washington, Terry, you were one of the few staffers to serve under President Obama uh, throughout his uh, eight years in the White House, I believe, and worked uh, particularly closely on his foreign policy speeches. You've heard Lorenzo and Philip talk about the speechwriting process in Brussels and London. Philip referred to it as a kind of exercise in creative writing. How does that compare with your experience at the White House? Yeah, I think in some ways they're similar. Uh President Obama gave over 3,000 speeches across his eight years. As speechwriters, we couldn't uh, bother him for his guidance on every single one of those. But for the big ones, State of the Unions, major foreign policy addresses, uh, overseas trips, uh, speeches to foreign parliaments, obviously, we were fortunate that we would be able to have time with him, you know, one, two weeks out before the speech. In the case of State of the Unions, it would be weeks and months out. And really, that was the beginning of the speech writing process for us because, you know, there's no one way to write a speech. And I'm sure everyone on this conversation can agree, you know, you can write 10, 20, 30 different versions of the same speech. Um, they may all work. Uh, none of them may work. 
only one of them may be what the person you're writing for actually wants to say. So it's so important to get that guidance up front. And, and that's what those meetings were uh, with Obama, an opportunity to go up to the Oval Office, sit with him, not surrounded by tons of advisors, but you know, a speechwriter or two, maybe an advisor or two, and really have a chance to let him just talk out what was on his mind, what he was thinking. And one of the things that always impressed me was, in my mind, he, he kind of approached it. He came to those meetings with one of two kind of thoughts in his head. He either had already thought through the outline in his head, what he wanted. I mean, I recall moments where he would sit there and say, okay, point one is this. He'd explain point one. That leads to point two. He'd explain that, which leads to point three. And he had already constructed in his mind and built out the outline and structure of the speech. Other times he may not have done that, but he had a very clear vision of, of the headline, the core message, the theme that he wanted to convey. And there were speeches that he gave. I remember when, when we were preparing to go to Estonia after the first Russian invasion of Ukraine to deliver a speech of solidarity, particularly with their Eastern European allies. And the president was very clear that, you know, there's only one headline to come out of this, and that would be a message of solidarity with Eastern Europe. We knew that going in, but to hear him say that, to hear that this wasn't going to be some wide-ranging speech on economic policy or other issues or refugees in Europe, that this was the he was going to be laser focused on conveying a message of solidarity with Eastern Europe. So having that initial discussion with the person you're writing for, knowing uh, you know one of the questions President Obama always said to us, always asked was, and what's the story we're trying to tell here? You know, speeches are stories. We've talked about telling stories within speeches, you know, whether it's a first lady of Ukraine or Polish women who welcomed Ukrainian images, uh, refugees. That's all important too. But the speech as a whole, the speech as a body of work has to tell a story. And so uh, making sure you get that story right at the very beginning so that you know when you go through those weeks of battles with the bureaucracy, um, you know what fits and what doesn't what belongs in the speech and what doesn't, because you know the story, because you know the headline. And there were many times where different elements of the White House or the federal bureaucracy would push hard for inclusion of some sort of initiative or proposal. And if it just didn't fit, if it didn't fit the theme that President Obama had articulated to us, we were empowered at that point to say, this sounds like a wonderful initiative, a wonderful proposal. It's just not, it doesn't fit in this speech. And uh, I think everyone on this call has probably been in situations where <laughs> speeches can become you know, Christmas trees, where everyone tries to hang on their, their particular ornament. And if it doesn't have a theme, if there's nothing holding it together to make it consistent, uh, it can be a very ugly tree. So as a speechwriter, you're trying really hard to keep it focused on that core theme. Terry, your references then to uh, Eastern Europe bring back some memories for me. I was a foreign correspondent in the 1980s in in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and the communism. And one of the most effective speakers uh, I've ever known in my career was Lech Wałęsa, the solidarity leader in Poland. And he did not have speechwriters. I mean, he was an instinctive, natural speaker in front of large audiences of the public. And he had a way of summing up the mood of a crowd and implicitly Polish society as a whole, but he was no rabble rouser. He he could be a very statesmanlike, cautious uh, speaker at times. I recall particularly at the funeral of Jerzy Popiwuszko, the priest who'd been murdered by the secret police. Wałęsa gave a speech at the funeral and 
people were worried that he might incite the crowd to action or something, call for a general strike or something. And he didn't. He actually said, we've got to be restrained. We mustn't give in to provocations. It was a truly statesmanlike speech. Let freedom reign from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom reign from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Terry, one of the great public speakers uh, in the United States of all time was, was surely Martin Luther King. The kind of rousing language that Martin Luther King used, I mean, often with biblical resonance to it, really, you don't hear this quite the same way from uh, European politicians, whether on the continent or in Britain. What do you think explains that slightly grander language uh, in America? Rhetoric in and of itself is neither good nor bad. <laughs> you can use words to heal and you can use words to hurt. You can use words to elevate and bring people together. You can use words to demonize and appeal to people's worst instincts. And in the early part of the 20th century, rhetoric in Europe by certain leaders was used to harm and to hurt and to demonize and to degrade. I've given a few workshops and, and presentations at, at conferences in Europe. And one of the comments that I've heard repeatedly is, uh, particularly from, from folks in Central Europe, is we've had a very bad experience with leaders who uh, whip crowds into a frenzy. There's an inherent suspicion in some cultures against uh, demagoguery. None of us should ever engage in that. And there's an inherent danger in that. So I wonder if that's part of it. Great speakers, good speakers speak not to just facts, uh, but to emotions, not just to the head, but to the heart. I alluded to this earlier, the, the election of uh, 2016 here in the United States, you had one candidate who, you know, Aristotle talked about ethos, you know, establishing your credibility with the speaker, pathos, right? The the emotions that you appeal to and logos, the, the logic and evidence that you use. And 2016, we had a candidate who was very uh, much the logos candidate, Hillary Clinton was a uh, had a lot of plans and was certainly very experienced. And on the other hand, you had someone like Trump who made uh, very, very emotional appeals to people. Um, and in many cases, uh, appeals that appeal to people's worst instincts. So perhaps there's a, I think in the United States, we're generally drawn to leaders who, who exude more emotion. And I think Obama is an example of someone who did that in a positive way, who appealed to people's emotions, but in a way that tried to bring people together and appeal to something that brought people together, a common human, a sense of common humanity is a theme that he hit a lot overseas. Not every, uh, not every culture, not every society, um, you know, seeks that in the same way. I've come here to Cairo to seek a new beginning between the United States and Muslims around the world. One based on mutual interest and mutual respect. And one based upon the truth that America and Islam are not exclusive and need not be in competition. One of President Obama's most memorable foreign policy speeches was early in his presidency in Cairo. Were you involved in that speech? Uh, not directly. So the lead speechwriter on that was uh, was Ben Rhodes, President's chief foreign policy speechwriter, working with uh, President Obama on that. He had made a pledge during the campaign to give a speech like that. You know, I reviewed it and offered edits like everybody did helped make some edits at the at the night before. But yeah, that was an important, I mean, I think if your listeners want to look at a speech that all sorts of different kinds of speeches that achieve, try to do all sorts of things. To me, that's a great example of a speaker trying to, I mean, it is making an argument uh, and that is important. Every, every speech should have some argument. You should be saying something, 
but really trying to, in a way that maybe I don't know any other leader had ever done before in the world, American or otherwise, really try to honestly step back and look at the the divisions between two groups of people in the world, in this particular case, uh, Americans, uh, the United States as a nation and, and Muslim communities around the world, and to try to look honestly at what the divisions were, what had pulled these communities apart and what might uh, offer some steps for healing. So that's what that speech was. And so you have a lot of hard truths being spoken, um, a lot of uncomfortable things being said. But I think one of, that's one of the reasons people responded to it the way they did all over the world, you know, Muslims and non-Muslims, Americans and non-Americans. So here was a leader who was 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 uh, stepping up and I think trying to trying to speak to us like adults, you know, not not telling us what we just wanted to hear, like so many politicians do, but but maybe in that moment what we needed to hear. It certainly did catch uh, the world's attention at the time, and uh, of course, it's, it can still be seen uh, uh, using our phones and laptops and so on. As all our guests have uh, indicated, an awful lot of meticulous preparation, long hours go into uh, the crafting of speeches from political leaders. One might think that uh, perhaps the speechwriters are the, the ones who coin the these memorable uh, turns of phrase and expressions don't get the credit for it. It's the political masters, the leaders who give the speeches, who take the credit. Does that thought ever cross your mind? Let me start with Philip. Do you ever think, nah, no, nah, I think I'd have liked to have got some credit for that turn of phrase, you know, that was mine. No, that's the deal you sign up for. You know, you have to have a certain humility that, uh, you know, I'm not prime minister, Tony Blair is, I'm, I'm there precisely because he is, he's won election victories and he's brilliant at what he does. And I'm, I'm delighted and privileged to be sitting here listening. I mean, I, I very much agree with what Terry said before about that, that great moment when you get to go and sit and talk and listen, because not everybody in the building, in Downing Street, in my case, ever gets that privilege. And as a speechwriter, you get great proximity to the principal and the, the currency in there is proximity to the boss. And as speechwriters, you need to be listening a lot. You need to be around. You need to hear the rhythms of their speech. You need to hear how their thinking is going. So I really loved all that. And um, and that does teach you a certain kind of humility. Um, I like to also turn it back the other way, which is when things go wrong, and they do go wrong sometimes, you don't necessarily get the public blame. So I think there's a sort of symmetry to to it. And um, and you're just delighted when something, when something lasts, when you know you've, you've captured something. Not always the memorable phrases, but sometimes you've captured an argument in a pithy way and you know you've encapsulated it well. It's a very satisfying feeling. You know, your words go out into the world and it's a great thrill to hear somebody distinguished saying words that you've had a hand in. It would be wrong to suggest that the relationship is one where the prime minister or the president tells you things and you just write your own script. It's much more collaborative than that. Even in the UK where it tends to be a more of a lone wolf culture than it does in the American context. But still, you're surrounded by people. There are other advisors. You're talking to people. There's other ministers. It's uh, These processes have many authors. And so you're holding the pen. But uh, very often, I was more editor-in-chief than I was writer as such. Um, I'd be holding it together. A, a big part of the skill, in fact, is keeping other people at bay because there are endless numbers of people who are trying to get their words into a prime ministerial speech. And one of the tasks you've got is to keep them away in order to protect that governing theme, which, again, I agree with Terry, you're not going to write a serious speech if that governing theme gets lost. 
if you can't tell me in a sentence what you're trying to say, then you don't know. And if you don't know, then you're not going to write a good speech. And often that can get, it, it, it goes into a kind of mist as lots of people try and get their pet subject into a speech. So so being a, a tough sort of barrier against um, material that's going to make the speech less coherent is a big part of the job. There's, you know, we've got writer on our job title, but actually there's, there's I've always thought as the writing as the, the fun, easy bit in the middle, and it's surrounded by a lot of prior thinking and contemplation and working out what you're trying to say, uh, which precedes it. And then, at the, and then at the back end, an awful lot of editing and a lot of keeping people out. Lorenzo, does that sound right to you? That the the the, the core task is is to develop a coherence, a governing theme for a speech. Is that similar when you when you put words together for the European Commission president? I agree with every single word that both Philip and Terry have said so far. Yes, th th that's very much it. And as um, uh, as Philip said, but also as as Terry was saying just just a minute uh, before. It's really about telling a story in the speech from beginning to end and trying to follow that thread throughout the speech and make sure that there's a consistency, especially with long speeches such as State of the Union. Obama was incredible at, at doing this. And I think that for someone like me who's grown up with his speeches, really, uh, speeches like his 2004 convention speech, I almost know it by heart because it's really uh, a speech where Obama tells a story from beginning to end, and it's a story about himself, and it's a story about America. And to me, that's really the target we are aiming at, telling a story from beginning to end and make it a story on both what the president is doing, what she's announcing, but also Europe as a whole. And that's a bit what we've tried to do with this State of the Union speech as well. That is, to me, the holy grail, to use a biblical metaphor, the holy grail of speeches when, when you manage to, uh, to get that internal coherence and that coherence with history and with who the speaker is as well. Thanks, Lorenzo. Uh, the last word I think we're going to hear from Terry. I must ask you, Terry, can a speechwriter in the future ever produce a speech in, of such compactness and brilliance as the Gettysburg Address? <laughs> Uh, with 272 words, I think it was. Uh, that's a challenge. You know, uh, we seem to get rewarded as speechwriters and speakers for uh, length, uh, when I think everyone in this discussion would agree that more is not always more, more is often less. <laughs> so less is more. <laughs> uh, but it's hard. It's It's very, very hard. But that's a great example of knowing precisely what you what you want to say. I mean, obviously Lincoln was, Lincoln was taking the stage after a speaker who, you know, spoke for, I think, I think two hours, uh, that, which was the norm back in the day. And I think in the moment it was such an anomaly to have a speaker, especially a president speak so briefly. I think at the, at the moment I would have read it. There were, people were scratching their heads, but, um, but no, it's a great, it's a great reminder that, you know, we've been talking about speeches today. I mean, each of us on this discussion have written for leaders who get up and speak for 30, 40, 50 minutes, 60, an hour, because we write for a kind of rare, a rare breed of speaker where that's accepted and that's the norm. But the reality is very few people in life, thank God, ever have to speak that long and ever need a speechwriter 
to help them construct a 60-minute speech. Most people can really sustain maybe 15, 20 minutes. There's all sorts of research about how how long an audience can be held and and um, things really start to deteriorate and nosedive uh, around minutes 18, 19, and 20. So, so um, I think you know, very few people should ever give an hour-long speech. We've all been privileged and lucky enough to be able to work with people who do that. But but the best speeches are are short speeches. The best speeches because we remember them. You know, you can pretty much if you can't say it in fifteen minutes it, to your to the point that I think Philip made. If you know, if you can't sum up your speech in a line, you really don't know what you're talking about. You haven't you haven't uh, thought through it enough. Uh, and if you can't give your speech and make your point in fifteen twenty minutes, then you probably shouldn't be giving that speech. And so this would be a sort of <laughs> an appeal to leaders and politicians everywhere that don't be uh, misled by these 60-minute speeches that you hear from uh, presidents and prime ministers. Most of us can get the job done in, in uh, 15 to 20 minutes, and we should try. And if you have a draft and a, you practice it and read it out loud and it's 25, 30 minutes, put it down, <laughs> go have a drink, go for a run, go <laughs> take a nap, and come back to it later in the day and the next day and and take out the machete and really start to cut because um, if Lincoln could do it in 272 words, you can certainly do it in uh, 500 words or a thousand words. It's very hard to do. That's just one quick anecdote. You know, we would be uh, finished with a speech and Obama, you had a habit of coming, you know, the day before the speech or even a few hours before the speech and say, hey, see if you can shave a page off this or hey, see if you can shave a few paragraphs off this. He didn't say which page or which paragraphs, but he just knew that every speech can be shorter. And you can, if you have time to make it better and make it tighter, you should use that time to focus on what's truly essential. So this is an appeal for everyone everywhere to give shorter speeches. Well, that advice could certainly have been given to whoever was the speechwriter for Kemal Ataturk. If I remember rightly, he once gave a speech that lasted about four and a half days, I think in the 1930s. That's all from us on this episode of London Calling EU. The show will be back again soon. And in the meantime, listen to the podcast and leave us a review. Thank you very much.